Hi, this is Adam and welcome to the African Pre-Seed Podcast. If you're a founder or investor keen on learning more about the African tech ecosystem, we've got you covered. In this episode, we're focusing on how founders can iterate themselves to success and the evolution of the tech ecosystem in Zambia. To help us unpack these DMC topics, I'm most pleased to welcome Gilbert Lungu. Gilbert, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks, Adam. Um, very well, thanks. And it's nice to be here. Oh, great. Well, thank you for, for meeting us out here in, in Lusaka. I think it, it was serendipity that we happened to be in the same place in the same time. Yes. We're very excited to have a chat. Yeah. And just for the benefit of our listeners, just some background on you, Gilbert. So you're currently the general manager of Selian in Zambia, having held that position from when Selian entered Zambia in 2018. Prior to Salient, you were the head of enterprise sales at Airtel Network Zambia and acting national enterprise sales manager for MTN Zambia. Before we move into our warm-up, Gilbert, how would you sum up your journey at Salient Zambia thus far? It's been five years. That's a yeah. long time. It's a long company. time. Yes. Yeah, it's a long time. It's been very exciting, Adam. I think the cellular philosophy is generally, you are the entrepreneur. If mm-hmm. you're a leader of a business, you are the entrepreneur. You write the script yes. and we'll support you through what you think is the right thing for the business to do in that particular geography. So I think from that point of view, for me, it's been extremely exciting. I think uh, it's given us latitude over the past so many years to not only be able to launch new products, but also be able to iterate based yeah. on what's happening in the market. And I think more importantly, I sort of take complete responsibility in terms of those outcomes. So we own the outcomes, we own the business and we drive it as such. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I, one more question before we yeah. get into the insight. Just maybe an insight for non-Zambian listeners about consumer behavior in Zambia that yeah. maybe they're not aware of or, yeah. or maybe even surprised you once you joined Salient that, that you think is interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at um, the nature of business that we do, I mean, yes. financial technology, and we sit sort of in the middle of the ecosystem, and maybe I'll sort of start driving into the insights now. Yes. The truth is, I mean, there are three mobile network operators. They've invested fairly heavily yeah. in terms of infrastructure, being able to make sure that they deliver last mile services, or at least be able to deliver the backhoe into places where people ultimately then use financial services. If you look at it from a regulatory point of view, mm-hmm. their objective is drive financial inclusion. The mobile network operators, who are the key stakeholder in the business that we do, is to invest in the infrastructure that's able to drive that. But then if you look at a period, say 2010, in 2010, mobile penetration in Zambia was, call it, about 30%. Yeah, maybe 20-something odd or 30% at best. There were about five and a half million active mobile subscribers. You know, fast forward to 2023, mobile penetration now is in excess of 100%. There are 19.8 odd million subscribers. Of course, there's the conversation around multi-simming and all that. But the truth is that the appetite for consumer uptake of, you know, mobile products, mobile-related products has skyrocketed over. Uh, and in my opinion, from 2010, there was a five-year period of growth. And that growth in terms of consolidation of the actual number of subscribers. Post that, consumers were now demanding of, what else do I get, you know, with this mobile phone that I have? Yes, I can make a call. Yes, I can send an SMS. To what extent can I go deep into financial services using this technology that has been sort of given to me? So I think the years between 2015 and now have probably been the years where there's been such an upsurge and a high uptake of mobile financial services. And that's where businesses like ours have actually come in. The three operators that are there, I mean, they are two sort of big, big players. But because, again, there's a discussion around fragmentation from a point of view of product proposition, coverage, you'll find that one particular mobile operator is strong in a certain area, whereas the other one is not. 
And then, you know, the capability and possibility of what this ecosystem business has done, being able to partner together to be able to deliver value to consumers. I think because of that, coupled with COVID, I think it was, in my opinion, a blessing in disguise, because in terms of uptake of MFS, mobile financial services, that upset really started around 2020, 2021. And, um, you know, consumers are now very accepting of alternative payment methods. They're very accepting of seeing a sign somewhere that says you can pay using this at this particular place. So I think that development has sort of flowed using that logic. And the past, you know, sort of three, four years post-COVID are what have really uh, driven this conversation to where it is today. It sounds like the most positive end of a supply and demand problem. Absolutely, product. absolutely. Very much so. Yeah. We're going to come back to that. And yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. I was going to say, we're going to warm up. I think you're already warmed up. Yeah. But just, just to play around the bit, just to add some additional color to the conversation, yeah. we're going to play a game of Rate This. Yeah. Rate this, rate this, rate this, rate this. I will share five topics with you. And the moment you hear each topic, please share your gut reaction rating, each one between one and five, with yeah. five being the highest score. Yeah. So... The first one is, and you've touched on this a little bit, sort of in a weird way, <laughs> yeah. smartphones, they keep, seem to be getting physically bigger. What's your gut reaction? Four. Four, okay. The future of voice calls and SMS? One. One. Okay, I'm, I'm going to make a note, because I, I still call people clearly. I'm in, yeah. I'm in, the, in the dying breed. <laughs> I'm being a bit cheeky with this question, just given Zambia's relationship with international finance, but yeah. the, the IMF? Four. Four, okay. That's an interesting response. Starlink? Four. Four. Yeah. Connectivity is a driver of economic growth. I mean, that, that, the, ultimately, we need that sort of digital infrastructure yes. to then be able to drive more inclusion. Mm. Because if you look at it today, I mean, the primary technology that people interface with to be able to access these services is USSD. USSD is very popular in Zambia, as is the case across most African geographies. But if you look at the background of why that is so, is because you know smartphones are either not available, you know, in terms of distribution, or they are available but just out of the reach of most people in terms of affordability. The truth is that there's a generation of young people that are coming now whose inclination is more towards apps. And if connectivity, then the connectivity piece is completely sorted out. What we we'll successfully get is the new sort of uh, cadre of consumers who are now going to use up those services. So a styling conversation is definitely an addition to that, to that sort of development conversation. Maybe link to that, and this will be interesting podcasts. Podcasts are a thing, five. Five? Yeah. Is that, is that your personal view? You That's my personal view, and I'll tell you why, yeah, Adam. Uh, the truth is, a podcast is a conversation. It's a conversation that's meant to, you know, help the listeners pick up something. Now, because the respective people that then show up on a podcast are either subject matter experts in a field or at least have some ideas, there's a good chance that people will absorb that learning much faster than, say, reading an article on the same subject. So, five for me. Great. Apparently, video is even more effective than sound, but I tend to agree with you. Naturally, I'm biased. This is a podcast. Yeah. So, thank you for, yeah. for being so <laughs> bullish on it. Read this, read this, read this, read this. Thank you for sharing your first thoughts with us, Gilbert. Really appreciate it. But quickly on to the main event. Yeah. You've been quoted as saying that the idea for Salient was first sketched out on the classic hotel napkin yeah. when the founders met. Yeah. While this is company folklore, in your experience, how should a founder go about 
tracking the ideas? How do you also keep track of the brain waves? To use that term that you maybe have standing in a queue or sitting in traffic or brushing your teeth. Yeah. How do you go about it? Yeah. So, I mean, look, the truth is, I think when, when founders of particularly financial technology businesses start out, a lot of them are driven possibly by two things, vision and their desire or burning desire to be able to sort out a particular problem that they've seen in a particular context. So in the early days of founders, I mean, imagine these guys, you know, at the advent of this whole fintech thing, it's guys in a cap, baseball cap, t-shirt kind of thing. And they were really defying the odds. They were really going against what is the norm and so on. So in those early days, they are driven by passion. They are driven by vision. And that passion could actually entail them saying, we don't have a piece of paper. Let's just scribble on a napkin. Let's scribble the vision. And, you know, we put it there. We know exactly what we want to do. And then we drive it. So early days of most fintech businesses, as is the case with Cellulant, very unstructured, driven by passion and vision. As you are bringing more and more people on board, those people have to first and foremost grapple with understanding the vision and then so that they can contribute accordingly. So, and, but with the passage of time, because now you start going out into the market, you are looking for funding and, and all that. And, and, and that discussion demands a different mindset. It demands a mindset of structure, order, or at least the, you know, semblance thereof. And if that doesn't exist, then your chances of raising funds then become diminished. So from that point of view, you know, early days, you can sort of understand the unstructuredness, but with the passage of time, all that needs to change because the context of the business then starts to change. Uh, and then with the passage of time, you then need to become more and more accountable, more and more structured, because then you are now setting up all the structures around governance and so on. If you look at the context of Zambia, and is, as is the case for most African geographies, fintechs are regulated by central banks. The central banks require reports in a particular format. They require risk management, you know, policies and all that outlined very clearly, like it can be blurred because at that point you are dealing, you are processing people's money and they just don't want the possibility that something could go wrong and then there is no one that they can chase up. So in my opinion, I mean, founders must be driven by passion for starters. And then the clear vision, very clear minded about what it is that they want to achieve uh, in this thing that they are setting up. And in that period, you know, you can sort of allow for some level of unstructuredness. But with the passage of time, because the context of your business is changing and you want to achieve certain things, you must add structure. You must, you must just have an organized outfit that's able to do what it's able to do. And in my opinion, that's why Cellulant has been here. And I say here in Africa, 20 years now. It's one of those sort of older fintechs because everybody understood in every season of the business what needed to be done, and they actually got it done. And then there was also recognition that at a particular point in the business, I mean, as is the case in Cellulant today, our founders are not here. They're they are not day-to-day -day guys now. They sit on boards, they advise, they play the role of coaches and so on. Because for them, it became apparent at some point that, you know, we've probably run the course and it's time to hand over to capable people who can drive the vision based on what foundation we have laid. So I guess, you know, it's just um, the willingness, the openness to be able to say, what season of the business, what, where is the business? What season is it in? Who do we need in this season to be able to drive the business forward? And, and that takes perspective. Yeah. To a degree, and, and the passage of time almost acts as a sander. Absolutely. If, if it's a piece of timber, gradually sanding over time to, to take shape, but it's hard work. Absolutely. To, to put it that way, especially if you just have some sandpaper versus a sand belt or something of, of that nature. Correct. 
speaking more about Cellulant itself, really interesting journey. It initially started as a value-added service play, Correct. specifically focusing on caller ringtones. I, yes. I remember ringtones when that was a thing, <laughs> since that was the zeitgeist at yeah. the time. Apparently, this is about the business model for two, three years, but around 2006, that was a big inflection point when Cellulant decided to pivot towards mobile payments. Just as a leader with a countrywide mandate, and I say that in inverted commas, but I'm sure it's a bit more complex than that, how do you figure out what's important to prioritize and what signals tell you there's a potential market opportunity that should be pursued? Put another way, how does one iterate a business to future success? So I guess, you know, one of the things that I made reference to earlier on is, is very key. And that is that if you're running a business of this nature, you must be able to solve problems because that's what these businesses are really meant for. You must be able to solve problems. So I guess in terms of the iteration and how that process then happens, you look at a particular problem, and I gave an example of fragmentation in the context of Zambia. We looked at fragmentation and said, to what extent is this such a big problem? Because of the nature of the players. So if you go in certain markets like Kenya, where we came out of, M-Pesa is the number one. Safaricom is the leading guy. They're at 90, God knows what percent market share. And if they decide that the market is turning left today, that's exactly what happens. That may not be the case elsewhere, as is the case here. So I guess one of the things that you look out for is, what is the problem? Is this problem large enough for me to solve? So you go into the deep metrics around, what's the size of that opportunity? Because that will tell me a story around, how long am I gonna do this work for in solving this problem? To what extent will I need to iterate with all the things that are happening in, in the external environment? Things like, in Zambia today, we, we have been told that the Bank of Zambia is now receiving about 10 applications for new licenses every month, 10 applications. That was not the case two years ago. So now the advent of competition and the aggression of competition is getting to another level. So you sleep with an idea today, a week, two weeks later, somebody else has got it and they're running with it. So I guess you look at things like size of the problem. You know, is this problem large enough for me to solve? You start getting into the deeper metrics around you know, what, what, where would the value be in solving a problem like this? Value to the consumer, because value to the consumer ultimately translates into value into your business and not the other way around. So I must not make value to my business the starting point. Rather, what's the value to the consumer? And then ultimately, what value will trickle down to me as a business? So I guess, you know, getting into, you know, those sort of deep metrics looking at some market stats, market uh, you know, data that's available, that, that then gives you an idea of what you are getting yourself into, to what extent you then be iterating, what frequency of iteration you're going to be doing. I mean, is it gonna be every three months, is it every two weeks or whatever it is? And all those other things that are sort of drivers for, for that kind of conversation. So I guess it's important to have that data over there. And as a founder, maybe speaking to the founder out there, you may not be the guy with the expertise to do all this analysis. It's important that as you are building on your vision, that you find capable people who would bring all this data to you in a way that you understand, that will aid you with decision-making. Competition creates pressure that, I guess the old saying, saying goes, creates diamonds, if you, if you want to put it that Absolutely. way. It's definitely better for the markets, I'd argue, which means decision-making is really, really important, which leads me to my next question. As a leader, how important is it for you to empower and entrust your team to proverbially get things done? I saw this thing shared on social media recently for President Barack Obama noted, what advice would you give to a young professional? And yeah. he said, learn how to get things done because that gets recognized. 
as a leader who has a mandate of responsibilities, how do you draw the line? And I think it goes towards your point you were making about focus and, and generally what the founders of Salient are doing now. How do you draw the line between what you should be CC'd on versus making decisions versus executing on a specific initiative using a racy framework yeah, yeah. in your own way? I just, yeah. uh, what's your approach to that? What's my approach? Yeah, mm. so I, I guess, look, if you build a team around you and building teams is extremely important. Like if the way that our businesses in this particular industry are making it today is by way of operating in an ecosystem. I think that must be true of how we ultimately then run the businesses, that we must create the right level of ecosystem. So we must build teams. That's a given. Build the team, be very deliberate about what you are looking for in the people that surround you, and then sell the vision. If you sell the vision of what we are trying to do, and we say, this is how this thing is going to be done, I think those people, in my opinion, could wake up one day and literally kill for you because they are so driven, they are so into the vision that they are passionate. There are certain things they will do and just inform you because they know that, look, if I cross this line, maybe things will get a bit sour on the other end. But they, they understand your mindset, they understand your mind, they understand your heart, they know exactly where you are in terms of thinking about certain things. They know your leadership point of view and therefore they project that ultimately to their own teams, then they're able to run that. So I think for me, if I even just recount how we've been able to sort of come to where we are, I think one of the things that we invested in deliberately was people, building the right level of teams, the teams with the right heartbeat, you know, the right sort of vibration around and making sure that is in, 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 in its proper context, and then empowering those teams to be able to drive the things that we want. They buy into the vision, and then they are running with it every day. Some things, like I said, my team just tells me, oh, we've done this thing. And sometimes I sit back and say, oh, okay, uh, <laughs> to see that person having progressed to get to where they are, I mean, it's so fantastic. So you empower your people, give them the latitude to make decisions, just like I've been given the latitude to make decisions and, you know, sort of drive certain things in the business. I also try, sort of try and project that on my people. And then if we fail, we fail together but hopefully we win. And when we win, then everybody is a, is a winner in that sort of context. And the cost of failure isn't reclamation or, yeah. or, or punishment per se, within reason. And I imagine the communication is yes. especially important, how you communicate your vision Absolutely. to your team. You mentioned COVID-19 earlier. At that time, Cedillion rolled out a range of ideas. It's been reported, had already been in development, with one example being the merchants adopting innovative payment solutions in response to public health concerns. I mean, it was similar across the continent. How much autonomy and authority is given to the research and product teams at Celadon to experiment? I think, what is the institutional attitude to experimentation and where do the drivers of the attitude come from within the organization? The philosophy of Cellulant based on, so we were privileged in that the founders ran with us for a very long time. And they realized that even for them to make certain decisions back then to pivot the business and so on. All that was based on data and how the market was moving and so on. So in terms of philosophy, the settlement philosophy from a product point of view has always been that, yeah, we do our research and so on. And then we are allowed to try, to try stuff. I mean, some of us were coming from organizations that were, you know, you, you sort of didn't understand that sort of thing. So you were told you can try this thing. You were always very scared because you said, what if we fail? But they said, look, just try within, you know, the confines of what we've sort of defined as the way of trying. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if it works, fantastic. So I guess the philosophy of Cellulant has always been that to innovate, to really be successful at innovation, you need to try. And you need to be able to give people the latitude to try. 
and also accept and understand from the get-go that it's possible that we'll succeed or we'll fail. Either way, I mean, depending on, like you've rightly said, I mean, failure does not necessarily mean retribution. Like, because you failed, you know, therefore you're out of here, whatever it is. I mean, there are, there are, there are people who are genuine. They are, you know, genuinely interested in what they are doing. And they tried with all the good intentions and it didn't work. But then there are guys who are a bit, you know, sort of careless or whatever it is. And those are dealt with accordingly. But generally the Selland philosophy has always been, let's try, let's iterate, let's move on with what we are doing. I think a typical example is the collection product that we developed in Zambia to sort of bring it home. Mm. We started out that project around 2018 when I joined the business. And at uh, that time, demand was very low. Our commercial modeling was a bit poor. We had focused on a particular niche of merchants. In terms of our capability to acquire merchants, we had built the organization to do that. So we had, you know, a properly structured sales team and so on. We were going out and doing the stuff, but uh, it wasn't adding much value to the business. With the passage of time, I mean, then COVID came, Maybe just before COVID, we had acquired one particular merchant. And the discussion with that merchant was, we were trying to do a separately, a totally different project for them based on how they are structured. And that didn't work out. So we said, instead of walking away from this discussion, why don't we, can we, can we not try doing this payment collections for you based on your distribution? And they said, yeah, let's try it. So we tried it. And every time I would get on a call with our group CEO, he would tell me, Gilbert, I've been looking at these numbers for that merchant. How come you're not making noise about it? I said, no, just, I'm trying. That was, that, that was my typical answer. I said, I'm trying. Let me try. Give me a bit more time to try. When I'm ready, I'll come back. And every time we'd get on a conversation, every month, he'd say, are you sure you're still trying? I said, I'm trying. <laughs> Give me up to December. I'm trying. <laughs> yes. Now, I think for me, that exemplifies what I was just explaining, that we are given the latitude to try these things. And at the point where the trying looked like it was something, number one, it looked like the opportunity was large enough. Number two, that it looked like we were solving a big enough problem in the market, in the pro uh, problem of fragmentation. And number three, that we could actually build a business model out of it. At that point, I said, I'm ready to sort of give this thing my full attention. And uh, fast forward three years, we're doing very, very well. We've acquired in excess of 2,000 merchants for that particular product. Our collections keep growing month on month, 10, 15, 20%. And uh, we, are, we keep adding more nicer, nicer names. I mean, some of the names that once upon a time, and nobody would have ever thought they would accept alternative payment methods. So I think that sort of exemplifies, you know, the whole trying and iterating, you know, and the latitude to try, and maybe it will succeed, maybe it won't. But what's the worst that can happen? Let's try and fail, or maybe we'll try and succeed. Who knows? And listening to your customer. Yeah. In a weird way. Absolutely. Uh, that was also a key nugget. Yeah. Beyond identifying the opportunity, your customers provide you the most feedback ever to iterate when necessary because they're dealing with the problem on a day-to-day -day basis. So spotted that. You spoke about it earlier, super bullish on the Zambian digital payment space and its ability to drive economic growth and inclusion. I know you've predicted that the national market size or statistics you've read, I'll, I'll, I'll have a quick, a quick yes. correction. <laughs> It'll reach about uh, and, please, and forgive me if this is wrong, $8 billion by 2027, if that's, that's correct. That's, that's a correct projection because, okay. yeah. Okay, then what, what's the ecosystem context in Zambia that's driving this viewpoint? I think you've hinted at it. You're talking about a, a mobile saturation rate of above 1.0. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the countries sort of benchmarking Zambia against another African country, or if you look at just the tech business, fintech and so on, like what are, what are the key drivers? Some of the key drivers, 
that an investor sitting somewhere out there would be looking at are things like population, because this is very volume-driven business. Now, Zambia doesn't tick the box with respect to population. Relative to our other, you know, sort of guys that would benchmark against, we don't tick that box very well. There's just about 20 million Zambians. That's, that's a low population if you are looking for scale. You would rather go to a Nigeria, an Egypt, a Kenya, you know, where people are in their millions. However, I think one key metric that's worth sort of looking at is I think the average spend per consumer, if we start looking at ARPU and all those things, the story sort of slightly changes. You notice that for an average mobile money consumer in Zambia, they seem to spend slightly more than what would be normal. So if we take a product like peer-to-peer -peer, you know, transfers, on average, consumers in Zambia, when we're starting out some of these things, they were doing maybe two transactions per person per month. Now that is slightly under 10, okay? That tells you a story. It tells you the story that consumers are now using this, you know, they move money to somewhere and then they are doing more and more transactions, number one. Consumers are also telling us, based on that behavior, that given the opportunity to use their mobile or electronic money over anything else, they'll do it. So give me the reason for me to be able to spend money digitally. And therefore, that's where organizations like ourselves then come in, in collaboration with all the ecosystem partners, the mobile monies and so on, to say we think that we can develop products that will accelerate consumer uptake of some of the things around digital financial service and so on. And uh, because our partners and us have sort of understanding, we're unanimous on the fact that we need to drive financial inclusion. We need to get consumers to be spending more than just what they are spending on, you know, doing peer-to-peer -peer transfers or whatever it is, but actually keep the money within the ecosystem because that's good for the ecosystem. If the ecosystem is funded, then it has fuel to be able to run, you know, and then be able to go far. So I think based on that understanding and with the understanding in the ecosystem and what consumers are telling us, we then drive what we need to drive daily and ensure that ultimately we keep the money within the ecosystem. And drive just velocity of cash Absolutely. within the ecosystem Absolutely. as well in multiple circles. Also, Zambia, much like the continent, lowish mean age of population as well, perhaps driving, driving uptake. We're nearly running out of time, so I'm going to squeeze in two more questions, Gilbert. I've heard someone else, I won't say who, they've described to me Zambia as such as the Delaware of Africa with the Hichilema government reportedly focusing on ease of doing business as, as a key driver of growth, among other initiatives. In this context, what is what is the current state of the Zambian tech ecosystem? You could probably speak wider to the Zambian economy itself because yeah. probably a stereotypical view, it's driven by mining and resources. Which verticals are receiving the most focus from local founders, just yeah. based on your observations? Yeah. So, I mean, traditionally, if we look at the wider context discussion around Zambia, I mean, Zambia is predominantly mining. I think what the President Hichilema's government have successfully done over the past two years is to drive what has been a concept around creating agriculture as that alternative to mining. To that end, I think there's been a lot of incentives introduced within the context of agriculture to try and grow that and then look at how all the other, you know, sort of verticals in the market can then benefit from that. How do we then drive tourism based on all the assets that we have? How do we ensure that from a mining point of view, because a lot of mines still have life, you know, there is mine life for 50, 60, 80, 100 years. How do we ensure that new investment comes into there? And I think they've secured significant amount of, amounts of investment pledges in that respect. And, and that is set to grow. 
And then now, I mean, in our opinion, at the point where this government came in and then said there will be a ministry responsible for technology, that was a big statement. That statement said, we are not paying lip service to this discussion. We want to ensure that with all the innovation that's happening with our young people who are either being educated locally or abroad, by the time they are coming back, that we enable them to actually be entrepreneurs, to set up new businesses that will ultimately create jobs and sort of spur the economy on. I think that is going fairly well. There's been a lot of drive movement, a lot of activities, a lot of sort of piecing the ecosystem as it were, uh, starting from the government point of view. You know, there are a lot of hubs now, innovation hubs, that the government is supporting because they're saying, if the ideation is happening somewhere else, let's make sure these ideas actually end up into economic value and so on. So I think from that point of view, I mean, there's attention to a number of things, but technology, in my opinion, has been given the right level of attention. And in the context of the discussion or the event where we are at today, the Africa FinTech Summit, the minister actually said, part of their job is to ensure that we piece this ecosystem together, not just at the local level, but globally bring all these global stakeholders in this discussion into one place, have a discussion, and then see how we ultimately retain some value from that. So I think the government has taken probably the right approach based on the context of where the world is today. And that context is that Zambia's population, like I said, is about 20 million. Statistics are telling us that about 62% of that 20 million people are actually below the age of 25. Okay, that's a lot of people. And then 52% of the 62% are below the age of uh, uh, 18 and below. Now, if you are running a country and that's what the population is saying, then surely you need to be able to pay attention to what do I do that will ultimately bring benefit to those people who are 25 years and below. And in my opinion, technology is one of those things. Use that often used term digital natives, the ability to uptake, implement solution and execute on new value or maybe more accurately identify it. Absolutely. <laughs> payments is always a competitive space because customers know where value can be found. Shows the government taking a, a data-led approach, if I could use that Absolutely. term. My final question then, and you've given me a very nice bridge to that. What does what the future hold for the Zambia tech ecosystem over the next five or 10 years? And how optimistic are you concerning the ecosystem's ability to make an impact continent-wide, given the current dominance of the big four yep. in terms of funding and media attention? Yes. So, yeah, I think... In my opinion, over the next you know, five to 10 years, the tech ecosystem in Zambia would have developed to a point where, in my opinion, the contribution to GDP could go anything between five to 10%. I think it would be that significant, simply because there will be so many th players creating new products, opening up new markets, opening up new opportunities. And then as this world is working in tech, it's an ecosystem. So as more and more investment is coming downstream there will be you know added more and more investments that will be attracted to the sector as a whole and in my opinion it could go to as high as 10 percent in terms of gdp gdp contribution i think some of the other things that are likely to happen is of course the intensity of competition with the opportunities that is going to happen inevitably what i also think is that there will be a lot of mergers and acquisitions because the big guys will probably be in a place and a space where they have sufficient muscle to be able to acquire the smaller guys. But my opinion is that maybe 10% of what we call the small guys will be able to graduate to become medium-sized players to the larger players. And as that happens, then the entire ecosystem will grow and grow because the pressure now will be, 
how do I sort of keep up? How do I make sure that I can carry on growing with, in, in view of all the things that are moving pieces in the ecosystem? So that's, that's sort of how I see it. I think Zambia is certainly, you know, sort of on, on that path to becoming, uh, we could potentially get into that top five, maybe top 10 uh, of the guys that actually attract funding. On the cusp of something more, yeah. graduation day. Yeah. And it's, it might be here already, as we know. Yeah. Gilbert, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for your Thank time you, and just sharing your insight. I've really just enjoyed uh, listening yeah. to you. I hope our listeners have too. Yeah. And just to all our listeners, Archie, thank you so much for joining us too. We'll close this episode up by asking you your thoughts on how to iterate yourself to success, as you've described, Gilbert and, and Sillians. I hope you want more competition in the markets. And they, competition is healthy. It's healthy. Yeah. And, and I guess it makes you try harder. Absolutely. <laughs> and the likely future of the Zambia tech ecosystem. Send your thoughts to Hello at AfricanPreSeed.com and also share with us on your social media using the hashtag AfricanPreSeed podcast. That's it for now. Catch you for the next one. Cheers.